Hello, everyone. Welcome to Asochatine Iroko's series of conversations about prostitution and um, the, uh, debunking sex work conversations about uh, prostitution. My name is Esohe Agatise, and I am the director of Iroko. And uh, I'm really thrilled to be hosting this evening's event. We have two very important experts that I'll be that will be presenting with us today. Iroko is a multicultural NGO which provides services to victims of trafficking and of domestic violence, as well as assistance to migrants generally. Uh, services include legal and psychological support, cultural mediation, employment, housing search, and temporary economic assistance program to name just a few. We also carry out research and advocacy and Iroko is a member of several international coalitions such as the Coalition Against Trafficking in Women, CATW, CAP, a European Network of Migrant Women and the Brussels Call. Um, Iroko has won several awards, the last of which is the Child 10 Queen Sylvia of Sweden Award of 2021. Now, we created a film entitled Viaggio di Non Ritorno, that's Journey of No Return, which is widely distributed as a preventative measure in Nigeria and around the world. It is important to note that Iroko is an abolitionist organization which advocates for the abolition of prostitution and for the introduction of the abolitionist law worldwide. So as one of the very first organizations to introduce the idea of abolitionist principles in Italy, Iroko decided to carry out this series of um, webinars to educate people more about abolitionism. So this is the first in a series of seven meetings. Now I will go and uh, immediately to present our first speaker, uh, Dr. Gail Dines, a radical feminist, who specializes in the study of pornography. Described as the world's leading anti-pornography scholar and activist, she is the founder and president of Culture Reframed, created to address pornography as a public health crisis. Dr. Gildais is co-author of the book, Pornography, the Production and Consumption of Inequality of 1997. And she's also the author of Pornland, has spun how porn has hijacked our sexuality that was published in 2010, which has now been translated into five languages. Uh, our second speaker is Melanie Thompson. She's a speaker, activist, and leader in the global fight to end sex trafficking and the commercial sexual exploitation uh, worldwide. Uh, she was trafficked in New York at the age of 10, arrested for prostitution a few years later, and placed in foster care. She became an activist at the age of 14. Ms. Thompson has testified before numerous legislators, uh, legislatures about the need to pass strong anti-trafficking laws and to end the arrest of sex trafficked and prostituted children and women in the sex trade. She's currently the youth Outreach Coordinator for the Coalition Against Trafficking in Women. So now I will hand over to Dr. Gail Dines to continue to start her presentation. Thank you, Gail. Over to thank you. Thank you. And it's a pleasure to see you again and everybody and to meet everybody. So thank you so much for inviting me to this. I'm really happy to be able to discuss these very important links between pornography and prostitution. Okay, so what we're going to discuss now is what are these links? And often in the anti-trafficking world, in some cases, 
pornography is missed out. It's not seen as part of the sort of nexus of the sex industry. So what I'm going to do today is to kind of make a more macro analysis of the way pornography and prostitution is really a very revolving door and often the same industry. So first of all, let's talk about how pop culture glamorizes and legitimizes prostituted women. So of course you can't do this without talking about Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman. Now, this was the film that made Julia Roberts a megastar. It built her in billions of dollars. It was everywhere. And it still, by the way, is producing an enormous amount of money. For those who've not seen it, it's a complete whitewash and glamorization of prostituted women. And the ending of the film is that she goes off with her John Richard Gere to live in wedded bliss. So let's think about this for a moment. Hollywood, whenever they hit on a film that makes tons of money, what do they do? They always do a sequel. So where's Pretty Woman part two, three, four, five, six, seven? The question is, why was there no such sequel? Well, let's just play this out for a minute, the reality of what would have been. So um, this prostituted woman goes off on a honeymoon with her John. Are they gonna live in wedded bliss? I doubt it. How many prostituted women do you know live in wedded bliss with their job? So let's imagine what Pretty Woman Part Two would have looked like. So they're on the honeymoon and they have a disagreement. She wants one thing for dinner, he wants another. What's he gonna turn around and say to her? You fight with me, you whore, and you're going back on the streets where you came from. Can you imagine what her life would have been like had she indeed married her job? But somebody in Hollywood has actually got a sense of humor. Why? Because the next film that Julia Roberts made after Pretty Woman was called Sleeping with the Enemy, which actually would have been exactly her life had she been, um, had they made Pretty Woman Part Two, because this is a film about a woman who is being battered psychologically and emotionally by her husband who's out to kill her. So let's think, where did this come from? Obviously, somebody was thinking or not thinking about what Pretty Woman Part Two would look like. Also, when we look at women, famous actresses who played prostituted women, most of the very top actresses are kind of run to play, of course, a whitewashed image. Um, so we have Nicole Kidman, we have Penelope Cruz, we have Mira Sorvino. By the way, this is from Woody Allen's film, so we're not that surprised. So what we find is there has been 26 Oscar nominations for playing prostituted women and 15 won. That's an incredible ratio. So my suggestion to um, actresses in Hollywood is if you want to win an Oscar, play a prostituted woman, but of course not really the reality because generally speaking, nobody wants to see the reality of what life is like for prostituted women. Now, we often talk about prostituted women to the point of kind of fetishization. Why do they do it? What makes them, which most of us here know, but I'll be talking about later. What I wanna talk about is the John. He seems to be the disappeared of this whole discussion. So let's do a bit more of a deeper dive into what creates a John. So there's two answers to this. The first one is that either men are biologically predisposed to be sex buyers or rapists or porn users or pornographers or pimps. So there's a biological predisposition, which we call biological determinism. The second answer is that men are socialized into being sex buyers. 
And that is a cultural answer. Now, as a sociologist and as a feminist, and really profoundly as the mother of a son, I refuse to accept that men are biologically predisposed to do all the violence and all the havoc that they do on our society against women and children. I believe they are socialized into this. And I know if my son was born with the true capacity for humanity, which he was, and equal to women, which he was, then why everyone else's son is. So if we're going to take the cultural analysis that men are indeed socialized into being sex buyers, we're going to have to look at the porn industry, which is probably the most important form of male socialization today. We know that pornography has become the major form of sex ed all over the world for boys. Any boy with a smartphone can access immediately hardcore free pornography. So this is why it is so important when we are talking about trafficking in the John to hone in on pornography and to understand the ways in which it is a driver of demand and also how it helps to pimp women into the porn industry. So let's begin with some history. The domestication of the internet in 2000 made porn more affordable, accessible and anonymous. The three major drivers of demand to pornography. And in 2000, when the porn sort of got in, when internet got into the homes, it was actually stunning to see the degree to which the pornographers cannibalized the internet. And interestingly, there's no accident because the pornographers were major leaders in the R&D developing the internet. The pornographers are major leaders in all forms of technology because they know that the more affordable and accessible and anonymous porn is, the more they're gonna have increased their user base. No matter what methodology we use, pornography is about a third of the internet, whether it is in downloads, traffic, searches, bandwidth, it takes up a third of the internet. Porn sites get more visitors each month than Netflix, Amazon and Twitter combined. So this is no small industry. This is a huge industry above ground that is probably the most unregulated multi-billion dollar industry that intersects with all forms of capitalism that has virtually no regulation, none whatsoever. Why? Because we call it speech as opposed to what it is, which is an industry based on the dehumanization, abuse and exploitation of women and children. So if we're going to understand the porn industry, we need to first of all hone in on Pornhub. Why? Because it is the biggest single um, traveled website in the world. In fact, it's in the top 10 of all the websites visited up there with Facebook and YouTube. It's owned by a company called MindGeek and MindGeek um, owns, I would say MindGeek probably runs about, um, distributes, I would say something between 70 to 80% of most of the world's pornography consumed. And until recently, MindGeek has run under, has gone under the radar, because if you go on MindGeek, um, and their website, which is really the Amazon of pornography, if you go on MindGeek's website, you are not going to see porn anywhere. They define themselves as specialists in search engine optimizer, um, IT specialists. In fact, they are a um, really a criminal enterprise, as we found out in hearings from um, 
Montreal, which is where they're based in Canada, that actually they are using trafficked girls, they're using underage uh, girls. And I would argue, which I will later, that they say that most of the women in the porn consent. I don't buy that. So let's just have some stats here from 2019. Now, normally every year they come out with stats. We haven't got stats from 220. The reason being is that they are hiding underground. What we do know, by the way, is that in 220, they have a, a, a much greater visit, and I'll explain why in a minute. So in 2019, which is the last year we have stats from, 42 billion visits, which was up from, 200, from 33 billion in 2018, a daily average of 100 million visitors, 962 searches per second. They uploaded 4.79 million new videos and they created over 1 million hours of new content. Now, during COVID, the minute the lockdown went into effect, literally the same week that it went down into effect in Europe, Pornhub, which has most of its um, content is free, has a premium section where you have to pay, it's behind a firewall. And that's where they have the more technologically sophisticated, not the more hardcore, because it's all hardcore. And what was Pornhub's gift to the world during lockdown? It was to make the premium free. And immediately in France and Spain and Italy, you saw the number of men going on Pornhub shoot up to 37%, 67% in some countries, 43% in other countries, so now you had women and children living in lockdown with more men than ever looking at more porn than ever before. Now, because of the hearings they've had to take in Canada, they've had to take down, I think it was um, something like 10 million videos. And this got great PR for Pornhub, as if the other 3 million or whatever videos up there are not violence against women. So they're not getting my applause for that. <clears throat> Pornhub boasts that 100 million daily visits is if it's the combined populations of Canada, Poland, Netherlands, and Australia visited Pornhub every day. The gold standard study, when we look at the content of pornography, is Anna Bridges and her team. And they found that 304 scenes, most watched scenes of porn, in porn, 90% contained at least one form of violence against women. And in fact, her latest finding, which she's updating, is that now it's more like 100%. And you know what? It doesn't surprise me. From somebody who spent too much of their life looking at porn, I don't think I've ever seen anything that's not violent on Pornhub or other sites. Let me explain what's the major content in all mainstream porn. Now, what I'm talking about here is pornography that is free, accessible to any kid, and the average age of first viewing porn in a lot of the studies is around 11, but we're now getting evidence that it's younger and often eight years old. And that is for kids often not looking for it, it comes at them. So what are these boys and men catapulted into when they get into Pornhub? So for all the millions of videos up there, these are the major sex acts in all of them. So the first, well, I should say acts of sexual violence. The first one is gagging, where the penis is so far down her throat that she literally starts to gag. She can't breathe, tears are streaming down her face. And as she's trying to pull away from his penis, the porn performer gets her head and pushes it closer to his penis so that she chokes even more. 
strangulation, which has to be separated from gagging, strangulation is arms, hands around the throat. Now, strangulation is especially dangerous, not just because it's strangulation, but also because we know from studies that women who are strangled by their batterer are more likely to die at the hands of the batterer. <clears throat> we also know that the effects of strangulation can take up to a week to hit in. So you can be strangled, and I've seen this in pornography, where women are strangled, their eyes roll back, almost to the point of passing out. Then you can think you're okay, go to bed one day, and die in your sleep anytime up to a week later because it can take that length of time for the actual throat to um, uh, swell up. And also what we find is that men who strangle um, women to death during sex can use the rough sex defense. Now in England, they have made that impossible, but in many countries when men strangle women and they argue she wanted it and it was rough sex, they use that as defense and in some cases they get off on it off or they get they don't get charged now rough anal sex is another um very one of the most um uh common acts and this is and when i say rough anal sex i mean pounding pounding anal sex to the point that many women in the porn industry have to have their anuses sewn up because they drop out of their body they get anal prolapses so rough anal sex, ejaculation on face, standard, standard scene. I don't think I've ever watched a porn scene which doesn't end with the men ejaculating on her face and increasingly into her eyes. And studies have found that when men are interviewed and they say the thing they really want to do is ejaculate on the face and they're asked why, what they find is, first of all, they say, well, it gives me power over her, which it does because they're standing up and ejaculating down onto her face but then they say but you know what's really a turn on I know she hates it so just think about this what pornography has done has shifted the sexual templates of boys and men to the degree that what arouses them is what women hate now we've always had that but not to the same degree that we have now because we haven't had the same propaganda as big a propaganda machine as we now have with pornography and again, spitting in her face, slapping, you name it. So the average porn scene on Pornhub that boys and men see, <clears throat> this is for free, is a woman being gagged, being strangled, being orally, anally, vaginally pounded away, spitting in her face, calling her a bitch, a whore, a cum dumpster, and the end is three, four, five men ejaculating on her face and, as I said, into her eye. Before the porn industry shut down because of COVID, there was a um, gonorrhea of the eye going round and it was antibiotic resistant. And as one of the people I interviewed in the porn industry said, have you ever seen what somebody looks like with gonorrhea of the eye? So this is your standard, standard porn scene. This is not considered hardcore. I do not go near hardcore anymore. I, I can't deal with what's considered hardcore, which is actually, well, this is torture, but this is hardcore, is considered one step beyond, where they actually um, electrocute her labia and waterboard her. They don't do that on Pornhub, but all of these things can be considered torture. So I want to give you an example. This is gagonmycock.com. We fuck them in the face till they cry. And these women cry, they cry all the time because they're not actresses, they're young women often living in the mid, in you know, places where they're looking at minimum wage jobs if they're lucky, 
They think they can make money from pornography. The pornography industry has a huge well-oiled PR machine. So they think they're gonna be a star. So I want to read you from some text from Gag Me and then Fuck Me. It says, do you know what we say to things like romance and foreplay? We say, fuck off. We take gorgeous young bitches and do what every man would really like to do. We make them gag till their makeup starts running and then we give them a sticky bath. Now, look how clever this is. Do you know what we say to things like romance and foreplay? We say, fuck off. We take gorgeous young bitches and do what every man would really like to do. Not every man wants to do this. But if you are 11, 12, 13, 15, you've got a minimum, minimal repertoire of your own sexual life. You don't know whether this is true or not. And they are telling you every man would really like to do. So what they're doing is they're throwing out to 11, 12, 13-year-old boys, you want to be a real man? This is what you have to do. This is your right of rite of passage into masculinity. Now let's go into an example of rough anal sex. And this is the promotional copy for a film called Anally Ripped Paws. You see, they, they're not flying under the radar here <coughs> about the level of violence they're using. So this is what it comes with this. This is the um, tag. We at Pure Filth know exactly what you want. Chicks being ass fucked till their sphincters are pink, puffy, and totally blown out. Adult diapers just might be in store for these whores when their work is done. Now remember, everything I get to, everything you see here is what you can get to for free at any age. No age verification whatsoever. So we at Pure Filth know exactly what you want. No, they don't. Do not tell me that the average kid who puts boobies or butts into porn is looking for this. He thinks maybe he'll be lucky if he sees a pair of breasts or a naked woman. Do you think he thinks he's going to be catapulted into a world of sexual torture? So the question becomes, what is the impact on him? What is going to happen to him when he is expecting to see one thing and he gets to see another? So what do we know? Well, we have 40 years of empirical research that tells us about the health effects on men and boys after using pornography. And by the way, anyone who says there is no research or we don't know if porn has an effect is either completely misinformed or willfully refusing to engage with the literature. So what do we know? We know the earlier boys get to porn and the more they watch, and this is true for men as well, the more they have limited capacity for intimacy, more likely to use coercive tactics, including sexting, sexual harassment, rape, involved in risky sexual behavior, increased anxiety and depression, habitual and addictive use, and now we're finding increased erectile dysfunction, which is really interesting because the erectile dysfunction is what everyone's focused on. Because, of course, if men can't get an erections, then it's an emergency situation. Forget that what's happening to women in porn is not considered that important. The erectile dysfunction becomes an emergency situation. So what I'm arguing is mainstream hardcore porn is a major driver of demand for trafficked women. Why? Because if you are brought up with porn, which increasingly men all over the world are, what kind of sex are you going to want? You're not going to want 
sex with intimacy and connection, you're going to want the kind of sex, that, well, violence, that you have been masturbating to and you have found arising. Asking a man or boy who has been brought up on porn to have intimate connected sex is like asking a whiskey drinker to go back to beer. It's not going to do anything. So who are they going to go to? Who are men who have been brought up on porn, which is increasingly the vast majority of them, going to go to to get porn sex? They're going to go to that group of women who can't say no. Because if you're trafficked, you can't say no because you will be murdered or beaten to death or something by your pimp. So this is, we will never, ever deal with trafficking unless we deal with pornography. The two are completely interconnected. And I'm thinking, and I'm so glad I'm being asked to speak here because there's so many organizations in the anti-trafficking world that will not touch pornography at all. And if you're not going to look at pornography, you are not going to be addressing one of the root causes of demand. So I want to give, many of you probably know Melissa Farley's great work. <clears throat> and so Melissa was kind enough to send me some quotes from her research. And <clears throat> so here are some of the quotes. I know porn stars, these are from journals, by the way, they enjoy sex on film more than other prostitutes. Note here that they themselves, the porn users and the Johns are saying women in porn are prostitutes. They're seeing the connection or prostituted, I would say. Another one, whenever I went for sex, I'd try new styles I'd seen in sex movies. Another one, we want to follow what we see in porn. Another one. We all collectively want to try after watching sex movies that shows gang rape. Another one, in the movies, the girls always agreed, but in Cambodia, the girl who was taken was likely to be beaten unless she agreed. And if you've not read Melissa Farley's research or been on her uh, website, then I definitely suggest that you do because she's got an incredible amount of research up there. Now, porn and prostitution are not considered violence against women because the argument is, is that women, quote, consent. So let's give you an example from the open society. Sex work, of course, a word that can, a phrase that completely renders invisible the violence done to women and, by the way, also legitimizes the pimp and the jar. Sex work is a consensual transaction between adults where the act of selling or buying sexual services is not a violation of human rights. Right, this is like stepping into a rabbit hole of 1984. That it's consensual evidently, and it's between quote adults. Notice they don't say, they don't sex base this at all because it's not between adults. It's usually between women as an oppressed sex class and men as an oppressor sex class where the act of selling or buying, see, same thing, selling or buying, nothing did no different between you selling it and I'm buying it, is basically not a violation of human rights. And I'm sure most of us on this webinar know absolutely it is a profound violation of the human rights of women and children. Now, we know that women consent under conditions of opportunity and constraint. So the constraints for most women in the world is poverty, racism, histories of sexual abuse, histories of substance abuse. And if you haven't got a substance abuse before you get into the sex industry, they're very likely that you're going to develop it just to be able to survive what's going to happen to your body. 
of course, being pimped out. And the other constraint is the grooming of women and girls in patriarchy into consenting. The patriarchal culture is one mass perp groomer. It grooms girls and women into thinking themselves as disposable sex objects, or in the porn language, disposable fuck objects. And this turns women and girls into compliant victims. So this is not consent. And I would go as far as to say that the vast majority of women, the vast majority do not consent but are compliant victims into the sex industry with constraints that are often hidden because they're systemic and we don't often talk about systemic reality. So the connections, many women in porn are prostituted into the industry, but they're prostituted by what are called agents or suitcase pimps. I was at the, I've been to the um, biggest porn convention in the United States, which is held every January in Las Vegas. I have seen pimps prostituting the women out to the pornographers. I've watched it at the tables making deals. Women move between the porn industry and other sectors of the sex industry. It's a revolving door. Porn is made of prostituted women by the pimps and johns and uploaded onto free porn sites. And I've seen many of this, and these women do not know in some cases that they're being filmed. Pornography is prostituted sex with the camera going. It is in many ways the same industry. So what are the effects on children and women of what we can call image-based sexual violence, okay? Because what's happening is when you're filmed, not only is the violence happening to you there and then, it is being documented, which is another form of violence. So these women have to live with the knowledge that porn users are masturbating to them being sexually assaulted. You have to live with that. You have to know that these images will follow you for the rest of your life. So there's no way to escape the past. You live in fear that your kids, your partners, your members, your, mem your family members, your neighbors, your employers could at any time find these images. That these images can be used for sextortion and are increasingly being used for sextortion by coercing the victims into other systems of sexual exploitation. The result, if you don't get help, is long life trauma. And that we know that women in prostitution, and I assume in pornography as well, have more PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, than do, than do vets, war veterans. We also know from Melissa's work that women who were prostituted and have porn made of them had even higher levels of PTSD. So this is the reality. Now we need solutions. We need to heavily regulate the porn industry. Regulate it in every which way we can, tie this monster down with any regulation so it becomes almost impossible to produce and consume. Apply the Nordic model to porn because users of porn are sex buyers apply anti-trafficking laws to pornographers, most importantly, refuse to be co-opted into faux feminism, refuse to buy into this notion that somehow um, sex work, prostitution, pornography, all of these are a form of empowerment. These faux feminists who are arguing that this is empowerment and this is women's choice, these are mostly women who have very nice academic jobs, would never in a million years think about ever prostituting, being going into prostitution or their daughters, 
but can say it from the safe distance of their academic jobs. And often I'm when I'm giving talks and I'm just so sick of hearing these women saying how great it is. So I often turn around at the end, and especially as students as well, all privileged, usually white students, but some of color, but mainly white, will be arguing how great um, stripping is, prostitution, poor. And in the end, you know, in the United States, education is very, very expensive. You can rack up um, debts of hundreds of thousands. So I say, look, I don't understand this. You're all in a university. You've got tons of debts. Why don't you go into sex work? Why don't you go down the road right now, start earning your money by giving Johns a blowjob for what, 10 bucks a time? Why don't you do that if you think it's so great? Because why are you in college? Because you're in college because you have the privilege and you have the ability and the capacity to go nowhere near sex work or prostitution, of course, what it really is. So this faux feminism, this third wave neoliberal argument that de absolutely ignores all the structures and reality of what's going on has been so harmful to our young women in this generation because it is grooming them into thinking of themselves as disposable sex objects. And of course, as feminists, what do we do? We organize, organize, and organize. This is what women do best. When you get women to get that slow burning anger, which I'm sure most of us on this uh, webinar have, slow burning, it can't take you over. You don't want full frontal rage, you want slow burning anger that drives us to change this world because we cannot survive under patriarchy. It is a corrupt system based on the degradation, humiliation and violence against women as a subordinate sex class and against children. So you know what we do as women? We fight, and I'm going to stop sharing my screen to just end with this, and to say that we have to get, we have to take back feminism, real feminism, the radical feminism that drove us all to do this work, that made it perfectly clear what's going on. We have to get rid of the faux feminism. We have to become the go-to feminism because we're not doing our girls any good by telling them that they're being empowered by being sexually exploited. And we can do this. We've done this before. And when women join together with this slow burning rage, we are literally an unstoppable force. Nothing will get in our way. No man, no system of patriarchy, no system of racism, no system of capitalism. We can dismantle these systems brick by brick. And indeed, that is our job description as radical feminists. So thank you. Thank you very much, Gail. I mean, that is powerful, really powerful. We can do this. One brick at a time. And I'm so pleased to listen to you. I mean, I could stay here for hours to listen to you. Unhappily, we haven't uh, had um, Melanie. I think she's had some uh, problems joining us. So we will continue uh, the conversation with you. Uh, we have about four um, comments or questions. Um, and uh, we, we can answer that but i also have a few questions i would like to discuss with you but first and foremost um i would like to go to the questions on the q a um, so that we can have direct uh, response from you to to them so i want to thank the first um person who commented uh, rebecca commented and that is a very powerful 
testimony um, where she spoke about what happens, you know, confirming a lot of what you said, girl, you know, where she, she spoke about her own personal um, uh, experience. She's also an expert speaker, lived experience of, of the, the harms of prostitution and pornography. And, and, and then the question of the revolving door that is often ignored by sex work propaganda all the time, where they say that, uh, and, and she says it is normal that the prostituted women do many aspects of, of um, the sex trade. And so there's this connection. She also confirms the, the, the connection between prostitution and uh, um, pornography and the need to, to bring them together. Um, I just wanted to bring um, forward one of the questions, some of the questions that we have, because people normally, although you, you, you spoke to it already in your speech, but people normally say, oh, but what has pornography got to do with prostitution? And they don't see that pornography influences the demand for prostitution or the type of acts that buyers de demand. So I just wanted you to speak to that the way that pornography in reality actually pushes demand and feeds into the kind of sex acts that are done in prostitution. Okay, so I think um, Rebecca, and hello Rebecca, thank you for your comment. Yeah, Rebecca, um, thank you. Um, so let's think about this. The fashion industry dictates how we dress. The food industry dictates what we eat. Every industry in the world has power to dictate. Now, not for every living human being, but on the whole, a cultural level. So how would it be possible for the only industry in the world not to dictate behavior would be the porn industry? I, you know, when people say to me, porn has no effect. From now on, I'm not gonna argue. I'm gonna say it's on you to prove it has no effect. It's on you to prove that the only multi-billion dollar industry in the world has absolutely no effect on anybody. So. Of course, every industry shapes us. We are, we are shaped by the culture. Pornography is the most profound shaper of sexual templates, sexual notions, ideas, concepts, all of these things. So when you're bringing up a generation of boys, which we are now, on what is considered normalized sex, which by the way, is all of those acts I said, you know, um, choking women with a penis, strangulation, rough anal sex, etc. How can they not want those acts? If they're masturbating to them, and let's just think about the physiology of this, right? They are arousing, they're aroused, they're masturbating, they're ejaculating. This is an intense dopamine hit to the body. How can it not be encoded into your attitudes, behavior, neurons, sexual template? And we're just finding out now from the neuroscience literature, the degree to which it does shape the neurons as they fire and wire together. And also, you know, we know we live in a, a society based on misogyny, but there is no other deliverer of misogyny that is so clear, so crisp, so succinct and delivers misogyny to men's brains via the penis, which is an extremely power delivery system. There's no other industry that does it more succinctly than pornography. So I, you know, I'm a social scientist. So I have been, I mean, I know the research backwards forward, I could recite it. But in reality, why would you need the research? It's so obvious. You know, if, if images didn't impact the world, 
why would we have a multi-billion dollar advertising industry? Corporations are not into charity and giving money away. They have, we have an advertising industry because we know images shape the way that people think. So it is such, you know, when people argue this, it's kind of a bit of a willful ignorance mm -hmm. and making us on the defensive. And I, from now on, I'm not going to be on the defensive. If anyone argues to me porn has no effect, my argument would be you prove that to me because I can prove otherwise very easily. It's it's such it's such a discussion that really grips you, you know. And and um, every day you see what is going on. I see what is happening, for instance, in a country like Nigeria, where you have um, the highest number of um, trafficked victims in many European countries. And right now we are having more and more incidences of of rape. It has become ubiquitous. Yeah. rape of little children, you know, gagging, all kinds of things that point to that easy access everywhere on TV, uh, in the markets, on, on, I mean, smartphones are everywhere now, even to um, um, young people, you find cases of incest in families and you begin to wonder how, how come this is happening? What has led to this? This is a society where this never used to happen. It is not even a case of talking about, or oh, maybe it wasn't being reported. No, the kind, the specific kind of things that are happening are some of what you just described. So I think for us, the importance of underlining this link, this close link between those images, you know, uh, um, virtual prostitution, as we will call it, and the actual acts. So the, the close link between pornography and prostitution, the importance of ensuring that that is really, you know, evidenced. And um, there was a, yeah, there was a question I wanted to, to ask, and that is a question of the impact of, of pornography. Course, the impact of pornography on young people. Can, can you speak to, to that a little bit? Yes, and actually this is really important because I'm going to bring this up. So, um, you know, I'm, for those who don't know me, I'm president of Culture Reframed also. That's, um, and if somebody could type Culture Reframed into the chat box for people to see, that would be great. CultureReframed.org. And um, so, we define pornography as the public health crisis of the digital age. And one of the things we do is specifically try to build resilience and resistance to porn in young people. So let me say what we know is that um, the impact, the younger you are, the much greater the impact. Why? Because your brain is still developing. The neurons are firing and wiring at greater pace if you're in adolescence and also You've, again, you've got no repertoire of sexuality to which engage with the porn industry and say, well, actually, that's not okay, or my wife, girlfriend, or whatever doesn't want it. Now, we have increasingly, and I've increasingly been working with child protection agencies around the world. And let me tell you what we're seeing. And I'm just going to throw out a trigger warning here because it's, it's very upsetting. So okay. it used to be, so what we're seeing, number one, is a large increase on child on child rape, boy on girl rape. Wow. The second thing we're seeing is it used to be that the average um, rapist boy 
was between um, 11 and 15 and the girl was between, no, the boy was between 14 and 18 and the girl was between 11 and 15. Now, after my interviews across many countries, I am hearing exactly the same thing. The average age of the rapist is eight to 11 and the victim is three to seven, three, to se three years to seven years. And it is usually their sisters, their cousins, anyone they can get their hands on. So the women who mainly in the child, it's mainly women in child protection, few men, but mainly women, they are going nuts because nobody is speaking about this. Nobody is talking about this. And at Culture Reframed, we're about to commission research, the first piece of empirical research from child protection agencies on what is going on because it's not out there. Nobody's talking about it. So here you are. So, I mean, I'll give you an example. I was speaking to one child protection. And again, I'm giving trigger warnings here, but I think this is important. And she was telling me that one case she had was a seven-year-old boy was watching porn on his cell phone with his hand down his sister's diaper, <sighs> masturbating her. These are now that's the least upsetting story because I mean the others I'm not going to traumatize people with but they I mean when I come off those calls I I really don't know what to do with myself because this is a level of unbelievable violence we're seeing boys perpetrate on girls and in a way we should also think about boys who see porn are also it's a form of sexual abuse to actually have to witness that at a young age I yeah. think of my son what would my son, if he was nine or 10, had gone on, luckily he's in his 30s now, so we didn't have this issue, but what if he had gone on at nine or 10 and watched porn? He would not be the man he is today. He'd be a completely different human being. And how would he make sense of those images? How does that eight-year-old boy? So I think as well, you know, from, it's a, for, pornography is a form of sexual abuse against kids. Now, what we know also it's, it's is- a comment. There was a comment now from someone, uh, I think Nigerian, who said that um, there's a case in her line of work, a case of a 17-year-old boy who raped a five-year-old girl who was his neighbor because yes. he wanted to practice what he had watched in a porn video, you see. And so in confirmation of what you're just saying, the way that these images, who knows from what age that boy started watching porn and then tried it out, as he said, on a five-year-old child. This is the story and I hear everywhere. I hear this in all the interviews that I have done with child protection, this is all they can talk about because this is all they're seeing. And it used to be if a boy, a young boy was raping a girl, that you could be pretty sure he too had been sexually abused and was playing out his... Now they, don't, they say that they're not finding that, that these boys themselves have not been sexually abused by a perpetrator, although we could argue by pornography they have, but not by an, a human being, an individual perpetrator. So, I mean, I think we are, we are a precipice. We are on the edge of absolutely a tsunami of child rape, a tsunami, especially since the lockdown. Kids who did not have access to um, different types of digital uh, platforms, etc., or even devices, and now all of them have got them. And I want to give you an example of what happened. I was speaking to at a school, 
and they gave all their kids digital devices and they were doing um, a class online. And this was, I think they were around 10 or 11 years old. And it was, they bought the rights to do this class online. <clears throat> it wasn't just an, by any means, an open platform. Right? It was a class they bought. The kids are doing their work. Within 10 minutes, they had perpetrators all over that class trying to connect with the girls. Within 10, they had to shut the class down. And this was a private class. So this is how clever these predators are. And now to make things worse, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Facebook is talking about starting an Instagram for under 13s, right? Now you're meant to be 13 and above to be on Instagram, which by the way, has been completely colonized by the porn industry. Porn industry is all over Instagram and Snapchat, as are the predators. Now, Facebook is making plans to come out with Snapchat for Instagram under 13s. This is like the predators getting a gift. Do you understand? This is handing them a gift. You've mm -hmm. already given them gifts by making Snapchat and Instagram team platforms. Now you're going to go under 13. And there has been some pushback, but I'll be honest with you. You know what Facebook's like. They'll do whatever they want. Yeah. And so we, we are in a global crisis on every level, a global mm -hmm. crisis. And recently, very interesting, I gave a lecture in, uh, in Colombia and they were telling me, it's in, you know, the latest thing in the porn industry is sex camming. You're familiar with sex camming where basically um, a woman is um, speaking to kind of Johns, but it's, it's one plate step removed. She doesn't at least have to be in the same room as him. <clears throat> which is slightly a bit better. But now sex camming has become the big thing. The two major countries with the most sex camming, first Romania, secondly, Colombia. Poor countries, right? With, with women who need money. And you know what they did in Colombia during the COVID lockdown? The sex camming industry took over hotels and put the women in rooms. <laughs> so it was COVID, uh, so it, it fitted to COVID and they were basically locked in their room, sex camming for the industry. So the stories I hear, and by the way, in India, I just had a talk with a nonprofit in India and because of COVID and starvation, the number of girls that are being sold into sex trafficking, sold into, I mean, it is, we think it's bad in the Western world. Go over to the global South, right? No, it is no. exploding, exploding. It, it's it's in the global south um there were a few questions now i mean it it just blows you away when you think of the the extent the 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 the, the, the ubiquity of these images now the the ease with which very young people can access this the way this is like it, it, it's going faster than a fire, the way it's spreading all over. Because in a minute, in a, in, a, in a second, a fraction of a second, those images are on the other side of the world. It's influencing you know, young people everywhere to want to follow. And this idea of a common kind of culture that is, you know, you, you, if you can follow up a, this kind of behavior on this side of the way, the way people, you know, as you, as you said, dressing, food, Everything is influenced, you know, by online images that are so easy now to, to access. Someone asked a question about what we can do. How do we deal with this? 
Um, in, in your view, do you think, you already spoke to the question of laws and policies that respond only to prostitution and does not really talk about pornography. In your view, don't you think it's best that the laws and policies we have should treat prostitution and pornography not as separate phenomena, but as the same thing? That the mm -hmm. laws we use yeah. on prostitution and trafficking should actually also be used with um, pornography? Well, yes and no. Certainly in terms of be treating users as sex buyers, right? And, and yes, the, the same law that we do um, against prostitution, absolutely. But, you know, it's a very different business at the point of production. Let's think of the value chain of pornography versus trafficking. So the value chain of pornography, which is from production to consumption, the difference between pornography and trafficking is that pornography is an above ground considered a legitimate business. That means they interface with banks, global venture capitalists, um, credit cards. Um, so we're talking about um, the differences between pornography and trafficking. So the thing is at the point all along the value chain, pornographers from webmasters to venture capitalists to banks, they intersect with mainstream international capital. So the way that we tie them down is going to be different to traffickers. A trafficker cannot walk into a venture capitalist bank and say, I have a new business plan to increase my trafficking, my um, trafficking business. Can you give me a pornographer can? OK, so we're going to have to figure out ways that at the point of production and finance that we basically deal differently with the pornography industry to trafficking. So um, one of the things that we're talking about is first. And these are what it, the pornography industry, like all above ground industries, does not want any regulation. Every industry, no matter who they are, fights regulation. Nobody fights it more than the porn industry. But there is some regulation we're talking about now, which is age verification at the mm. point of production and consumption. And it has to be age verified by a third party, not the porn industry. Not the porn industry. Yeah. Now, of course, that's not the going to close down the porn industry which is what we all want okay but it's going to make it more difficult and then we need class action suits against the porn industry for all the violence and havoc they have caused in the world there's many ways we go after this group because they're above ground now if you wanted to stop trafficking there's not one person you could sue right you'd have to do a lot yeah. if you want to stop porn there's one organization that if we bankrupted with class action suits, you would take down the infrastructure of the porn industry, and that is MindGeek. And unlike the traffickers, I can right now give you the address of MindGeek in Montreal. Okay, so they're not hidden, they're out there. So my argument would be to throw, not necessarily through criminal law, mm. right? because if you do criminal law, they go to prison and there's someone else who takes their place. Go where they really hurt, money. Money. And, and I was involved in about eight nine years ago i was an expert witness in a group that went after a porn company called girls gone wild which was a massive porn <laughs> company we bankrupted him out of business we kept coming at him with so many um uh, uh class action suits that he he's basically went bankrupt 
And this is what I suggest we do with Mindy. Every country, everywhere, everyone <laughs> should be doing a class action suit against them. So they just they just don't know where to fight first. Yes. Right. This is the way to take them down. Um, so forget the notion. You know, people say, do you want to ban the porn industry? We can't ban them now. That's 20th century talk. We live in the age of the Internet. So and we live in capitalist society. Use capitalism in our oh for us this yeah. time and go after them financially. That's awesome. I think that's a very fantastic suggestion because if you say ban it, it goes nowhere. And what does it mean? Um, there are a few comments. Um, one asks, how would you address the critics of the Nordic model who label supporters of the Nordic model as carceral feminists, whatever that means? Yeah, whatever I mean, my addition. Well, all I would argue is anyone who supports, how would you address the critics? Right, anyone who critiques the Nordic model, there's a number mm. of reasons why they do it. The first one is they don't understand it. Some of them, they don't, they, some of them say, you know, you're going to hurt the women more and they don't understand that. In fact, the worst thing you can do. Sorry, Gail, can, can you just give a, a very quick explanation of the Nordic model? I prefer model? you to do I'm this because sure. you're the anti-trafficking expert oh, and oh, I'm the anti-porn okay, expert. Okay, well, the Nordic model, and that is the same that we call the abolitionist model, um, is fighting for the abolition of prostitution, which is based on three basic principles. The first one, that of the decriminalization of prostituted women. We say women because the greater majority, the vast majority of those in the prostitution industry are women. And so it's a gendered uh, uh, crime. Uh, so the, the, but they are the ones who are punished. The women in, in almost all laws across the world, with the exception of those countries that now have the Nordic, uh, the abolitionist model, it's those in prostitution, prostituted women, children, and men, that are punished by the law. So the Nordic model is asking for that to be changed. Those who are prostituted should not be changed, uh, um, punished. And so the decriminalization of prostituted women. Second, the criminalization of the demand. Those who buy sex should be the ones, and as you turn, the, the, because they're the ones who make a choice. And so they should be the ones who should pay for what society feels as harm. And so to penalize those who buy sex. And then the third principle is that of providing support to those in the sex trade who want to exit. So again, the greater majority of women in the sex industry are there, not because it's a choice, but because for a variety of reasons, they find themselves in that industry and they want to exit as you know, the, the, some of the research that people have done, including Melissa Fali, some of the research is also done to show that women in prostitution want to exit so that they are able to exit in a dignified manner. So these are the three principles that uh, it's important to let people know of the, of the abolitionist or Nordic model. Exactly. Yeah. And the abolitionists, I mean, that's, we, those of us who are abolitionists do not believe that the sex industry can be made less harmful. That's Absolutely. not our, our goal. Is not harm reduction. Our goal is to see the end of this industry because Absolutely. it is too corrupt, too rotten, 
and to the core. It, it shouldn't exist. It's a form of sexual slavery and you cannot make sexual slavery or any form of slavery better. You have to get rid of it. So, and, and that's what pornography is. It's a form of sexual slavery. The women I've interviewed who have exited, you know, when you interview women who are in the porn industry, they say, oh, I'd love it. I, I like sex. Wait till they've been out a few years. You get a, comp and it's the same in uh, women who've been, prostituted you hear a completely different story afterwards what really went on and I don't think I've ever interviewed a woman who's exited pornography who said anything other than just how terrible and abusive it was to her and what trauma she suffered on the set because basically it was rape it was rape again and again and again that reminds me of a panel I was on once uh, where um, a woman who was in the porn industry was also being interviewed. Um, there, was, there was this journalist who was interviewing her and she was going on and on about what a fantastic activity it was. And, and the journalist now asked her, okay, so would you recommend to your daughters, you have two daughters, would you recommend um, to them to go into this industry? She went, you know, white. <laughs> She blushed out and said no, in a very strong manner. And, and so the question now was, if it's such a great industry, as you say, why would you not want your children to go in? Exactly. I am a lawyer. I want my children to be lawyers. So why don't you want your children to go with it? So this, this is also part of that um, hypocrisy, if you will, um, of, the, of the industry in which they try to, those who promote it, they try to make out that it's okay as long as it's for other people's children exactly. and not something that's related to them. So okay. that, that's really- I want really to tell you an interesting story about that. I was at Yale University giving, there was a panel on pornography and prostitution and actually Melissa and I were the only two who were against pornography and prostitution. It was at the law school and the, the Yale Law School is probably the most, um, the, the, the most important law school in the United States because it trains theorists as well as lawyers, right? Mm. And um, at one point, I mean, I, I couldn't, it, and it was just the two of us against at the whole panel who was pro-porn and pro-prostitution. And at one point, you know, at lunchtime, I just couldn't stand it. I didn't sit with the others. I went out and I sat in the library and there was an, an African-American woman in the library cleaning up. She was doing double shifts on the Saturday. And I remember thinking, if she wanders into that panel right now, she'll think academics have lost their mind. And she would be completely right. And then I got talking to her and she was talking about how she was doing double shifts because she was putting her daughter, not through Yale, but through another university. And I'm sitting here thinking this woman is working double shifts so that none of her kids end up in porn or prostitution. And those morons sitting on the Yale Law Panel, all from Yale Law School, all at the top law school, saying how great porn and prostitution yeah, I mean, it made my blood boil, you know? When you think of what women will do to keep their daughters out of that. Poor women will take on, you know, two, three, four, five jobs, will do everything <laughs> they can. And then these white privileged women argue that it's a legitimate form of work for other women's daughters. Other women's daughters. Uh, we have um, 15 minutes left and there are three questions I want to quickly ask you. The first one is, if you had one piece of advice or information to young women today, what would it be? 
join the radical feminist movement. Absolutely. Read, read as much as you can in radical feminism. There's, yes. radical, there's Facebook pages run by radical feminists, manage a public page, which is open for discussion on Facebook. Um, mm -hmm. People can go there, people post, there's other ones on Facebook that you can join, but start reading. Start reading Andrea Dworkin. Start reading Melissa Fari. Start reading Rachel Moran. Start reading anything you can get your hands on on radical feminism, because you know, radical feminism is the only feminism which understands that the core is women as a subordinate sex class, that this is the core of the issue, and that what we have to do is fight on a systemic level. And it's not woman by woman, man by man, but there has to be overall systemic change. And what was interesting, you know, I taught for 30 years and all my classes, you know, it was interesting. I used to call it feminist theory, but I should have called it radical feminist theory, of course, because that's what they got. And it was so interesting what would happen. So my students would come in on day one and I say, how many of you are feminists? And like two hands would go up. By week four, of radical feminism, they were ready to tear down the patriarchy with their bare hands, their rage, because suddenly they, their life made sense, you know, I mean, there's no other feminism, liberal feminism, or third wave feminism, or other that absolutely as a woman, I remember reading Andrea Dworkin at 18, and it was like light bulbs went, this, this is just this is the world. This makes sense of my. It's like you have a filing cabinet in your head, and everything goes click, 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 because suddenly it makes sense in a way it never did. So, and my students said at the end of the semester, "This has saved my life. I don't know where I would be without this." And I have to say the same for me. Where would I be without? I don't know. I would and, not. This person. And, and, a lot of times, you find that young people, because they don't seem to have an alternative, you have this massive industry that is you know giving them this information right left center that this is cool when you behave like this when you watch porn you do porn that's a good so when they don't have when they don't have access to alternative information they think oh it's a desperate situation and a lot of them by the time you speak to them it comes out that they thought there was no alternative that was the only way out so that, that's, that's some really, really powerful for, for them. Um, the other two questions, I'll quickly give it to you. What do you find to be the best way to debunk the widespread notion of prostitution as sex work? Well, to explain what life is like for women in prostitution. I mean, um, and is there any other job that comes with being naked, the possibility of being murdered, PTSD, all of these things in the job descriptions. No, there is not, that is not what work is. And in fact, what I would argue is that, you know, when you think about the meaning of work in capitalism, it didn't just come from nowhere. It was fought for by the unions. And what separated feudalism from capitalism was that in feudalism, you were tied to your employer or whatever for 24 hours a day. What the unions fought in capitalism was that you were not tied to your employer for 24 hours a day. They could only buy eight hours of your labor, right? That was a big fight. If you think about the life of a prostitute, 
Emancipated woman, it's much more like um, being in serfdom and feudalism than it is in capitalism. There's, you know, this it, it, the word work is thrown around so easy. What it's what is underappreciated is the role that unions play in defining work to give the worker some freedom, not much, but some, which prostituted women are 24 hours a day belong to their pimp, could at any moment be murdered, beaten up. You know what? You name other job descriptions where that happens. So, um, and it shows an incredible sense of lack of empathy to think what life must. If you can think that that you know, giving out your vagina or your mouth or the most intimate parts of your life to these creepy, creepy, creepy men as work, then there's something lacking in your capacity for empathy. Yeah. That's I remember once is. somebody asked me, what's the difference between, was at a university, what's the difference between being a waitress and being a sex worker? And I said, if you have to ask me that question, I don't think I can answer it. If you yourself cannot figure that out, I don't think I have the vocabulary to explain that. Because there's, yeah. obviously there's something missing in those people. There's an empathy chip somewhere that's not there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So thank you very much. Then the other, the last question before we close out, we still have it, is that, is that I, the question I had asked previously about some solutions from a policy perspective um, of how to deal with the question of, you know, the harms of pornography. Um, how, how do we deal with it? How do we mitigate its effects? How do we ensure that in the future, we don't have this tsunami that is coming. We don't have it continuing. We can stop it in some way. What, how do we do that from a policy perspective? Okay, so there's two answers. First of all, absolutely regulation. We need to start organizing for regulation at the point I said of production and distribution. All mm -hmm. along the value chain needs to be regulated. Secondly, I suggest that people go to culturereframed.org. We have up there, we built two programs, one for parents and queens, culturereframed.org. Go to the parents program. They're free, by the way, you just have to put your email in and they're free. They took a year and a half each to write and they show you how to talk to young people about pornography. We even have scripted out conversations up there. They were written by a multidisciplinary team of psychologists, pediatricians, sexual health experts, child safeguarding. And we've done this work and it took us, as I say, a year and a half to two years for each one. It's all been peer reviewed. It's research driven, very accessible, but it is the only thing of its type anywhere in the world that explains mm -hmm. it. And by the way, if somebody, in your organization would be interested in um, translating it into Italian because it was, oh. it's, been, it's been translated yeah. into Turkish. It's been used all over Turkey. It's been you being used in Sweden, the, pro the programs. And what we found is they're so good that pediatricians, therapists, all these people who need to know this information about the harms of porn, yes. how to deal with it, don't know. So they've come to us at Culture Reframe. So we are being used all over the world, not just by parents, but by professionals. So the, we have done all this work. Don't reinvent the wheel, right? And it's free. We purposely made it free so that everybody, no matter what their socioeconomic position, 
could use mm. it. And so it, and on our website, so go to the website, culturereframe.org. Yeah, I, I, on the parents I put program. it now here, yes. This, this for us is really important, is very, very important. We can have it uh, translated. Do you have it in French also? No, not in French. Okay, so we can have it translated into Italian and French. That would we'll go through it and let's talk yeah. offline about because because again, this is so critical that we start. You know, I I gave a keynote at the American Academy of Pediatrics, the biggest single pediatric organization in America, fifteen thousand pediatricians, and. I got up there and what I really wanted, and now this is huge, that they asked me, I thought there must be trouble, right? Because normally who asks a radical feminist to speak to an American Academy of Pediatrics? So I get there and what I really wanted to say, and excuse my language for those who don't like this, what I wanted to say to them in my opening statement was where the fuck have you been for the last 20 years? <laughs> I didn't because I'm a professional, but what was clear to me in that room of 15,000 pediatricians none of them knew about pornography. Who wow. should be at the front line of this? The pediatric, I mean, it was astounding. Since then, I have been all over speaking in hospitals, to pediatric groups, to nurses. They need to get hold of this. And in Turkey, Culture Reframe, together with the um, Therapeutic Association of Turkey, of therapists, um, we trained 200 therapists in the Culture Reframe model. And now they're going across Turkey, training other people. So we, we built this as a training program as well. So I do implore you, there's, there's resources out there on how to deal with this. So okay. two ways, regulation through the legal system, secondly, awareness and education, and that's where Culture Reframe comes in. Yeah. So thank you so much, Gail. I think that is what we need to do. We need to get that information out. That is one way we can fight this. You know, get this information out, have it translated in as many languages as we can, have people know, carry out trainings, you know, and reach out worldwide to stop this because these are powerful institutions with a lot of money, but we can fight them, as you rightly say. And we're not so going to give in to men. We're not going to give in to men. No way. We're not giving in, absolutely. No. No, absolutely. <laughs> so we have come to the end of today's program. It's been really, really wonderful to have you, Gail. Um, unhappily, our other panelists could not join us. I think there were issues with um, some technical issues. And so she was unable to join us. We'll find some other time to bring her. But we've had this wonderful and extremely important conversation with you, Gail, and the training, the new things I keep learning every time I listen to you, the new, new things I keep learning, and what most especially what we need to do. I mean, I think that is the most important aspect of this, to know the direction, what's the roadmap, how do we deal with this issue, to have that is extremely important and I want to thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure. Thank you.